This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. A man is being followed. He doesn't know it, but he has been tracked for the better part of a day. He sits down in a booth at a local bar in his hometown of Lake Butler, Florida, and orders a beer. Several people watch him from the shadowy corners of the room. He finishes his drink and orders another. One of the man's stalkers makes his move. He's armed, but doesn't draw his gun. He walks towards the man, but veers off towards the employee's section of the bar. You see, the man's pursuers are not there to harm him. They are Denver area police. They're not even there to arrest him, yet. Instead, they are after something that will confirm suspicion started almost four decades ago. They're actually there to collect the man's beer mug. But before continuing this chapter in the story, we need to go back to January 1980 in Denver, Colorado. The weather is relatively mild, and all over the Mile High City, you can hear Rod Stewart, the village people, and the knack blaring on radios as the most popular bands ring in the 80s. 21-year-old Helene Pruszynski has temporarily moved out to Denver from her home state of Massachusetts. She is majoring in journalism at Wheaton College and got into a winter internship at KHOW, a local radio station. The station itself is in downtown Denver. Helene takes a local bus every day from her aunt and uncle's house, who live in a suburb just outside of the city. Helene was um, well-liked. This is Kevin Vaughn. He's an investigative reporter at KUSA 9 News in Denver. She was um, described as always being very respectful, did not take chances, was not known to, you know, get into cars with strangers or that sort of thing, um, was not believed to be dating anyone during her time here. Um, just... Um, you know, sort of the image of the clean-cut young woman pursuing her college degree and getting some experience in the radio field. On January 15th, Helene takes the bus to the station and works a full day. That evening, she says her goodbyes and leaves the station. And she got onto a bus and headed south on Broadway, and she got off in Inglewood and had about a six-block or so walk to um, her aunt's house where she was staying, and she never got home. A couple of hours go by, and then her aunt starts to worry. With no cell phones or way of finding out where she is, her family calls the police and reports Helene has not returned home. The police respond quickly, and a search for Helene begins and continues through the night. The next morning, a, a woman um, called police to report a body in a field down in this area known as Highlands Ranch. Today, it's completely developed with, with houses and, you know, big malls and that sort of thing. But back then, it was largely rural um, ranch and farmland. And so the authorities went and they found uh, this young woman's body in this field and they almost immediately identified it as that of Helene Przinski. 
Her body was found several hundred feet from a road out in this field. She was laid out on the ground. Um, she was partially naked. Her hands were bound behind her back. Um, her, her pants had been taken off. And it was, it was pretty obvious, you know, right away to the detectives that that this was foul play, that, that somebody had done this to her. Douglas County Sheriff's officers and investigators from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, aided by volunteers from the Arapahoe County Search and Rescue Unit, spent much of the morning combing the area, hoping to turn up something to lead them to the girl's murderer. The radio station where Ms. Pasinski worked has offered a reward for information leading to the conviction of her killer. The mystery of, you know, what happened to her was solved in a certain sense. They knew that someone had apparently abducted her, and it appeared she'd been sexually assaulted and she was stabbed to death. Now with a body, police move quickly to cordon off the area and begin collecting as much evidence as possible. They did collect a lot of evidence. They collected all of her clothing. Um, they collected some plaster casts of footprints in the area. They suspected that the uh, that the killer may have been wearing cowboy boots based on some of the footprints. After conducting as many interviews as they can, the very first break in the case happens when investigators reference several other 911 calls made in the days prior and in the same area. They had a description of a car that came from another case, um, and that's one of the things that remains a mystery. There were several women in the same area um, of Inglewood, who in previous weeks had reported um, that a man had attempted to sexually assault them. And so their initial theory was that the same person that had done those crimes had perhaps been the person who, um, you know, either lured Helene Przinsky into his car or grabbed her by force or something and transported her down to this field in Highlands Ranch. Investigators are able to build a physical and psychological profile for the suspect, but they're not able to locate anyone that even generally matches who they think they're looking for. One witness that may have seen somebody they thought maybe the person was a, a white man, 20 to 30 years old with, you know, wavy, medium length hair over his ears. But, you know, two things about that. One is, Eyewitness testimony is often the weakest part of any criminal case. Um, you know, we used to do an exercise in journalism school where uh, the, the, the professor, this professor I had, would stage sort of a confrontation, would pound his fist on the desk and his ashtray would fall off and break on the floor. And everybody in the class would think, you know, some dis disturbance was going on. And then he would ask them all to write about it. And what people wrote about was invariably different from person to person because they all saw something different. They all remembered something different. There were efforts to write a profile based on the kind of crime. And again, you know, you get into this whole question about what you can divine from a crime about the person who committed it. And, you know, they, they tended to, often these profiles tended to conclude that the person was a loner, drifter. They knew he probably was at least old enough to be operating a car. So probably at least, uh, you know, 16, 17 years old and that sort of thing. But they didn't have any real good suspects, that's for sure. Unfortunately, this investigation just stalled out rather quickly. Um, they um, didn't have an eyewitness. They had this description of this car, um, but they weren't able to develop any suspects from those other attempted sexual assaults. You know, no, no idea who the person was that might have been driving that car. Um, we have to remember in 19... 
uh, 80, there was no real concept that you'd be able to take evidence from a crime scene and develop a genetic fingerprint from it, a, a genetic profile, you know, what we all know today is DNA. So primarily then, you know, they were looking for uh, evidence of sexual assault and and they sometimes could do blood typing and that kind of thing from, you know, semen or other evidence left on a body. But what they were generally doing in cases like this was talking to as many people as they could talk to, looking for people that might have seen something or knew someone. They were running through um, lists of known sex offenders and trying to see, you know, does this person have an alibi? Will this person answer questions? And that sort of thing. Um, the, the scientific component of it seemed advanced at the time, but is really crude by today's standards. You know, it was just one of those mysteries that, um, you know, that, 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 ling that, you know, that went on to linger for, as we know now, almost four decades. Years go by, then decades. The case is transferred to different detectives throughout the years and is occasionally reinvigorated with a tip or some sort of new technology. It was actually reopened a number of times over the years. The first time was in 1998. By then, DNA was a thing, and lots of old cases were being sent to the state crime lab here, operated by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, to be tested for DNA. And so that was done in 1998, and a DNA profile was developed. And they went back um, in 2005, in 2010, in 2013, and then again in 2017, doing ever more sophisticated testing and new rounds of investigation. But it was really only in the last couple of years that this, uh, this investigation gained momentum. Because there was a lot of evidence collected from the crime scene, DNA testing becomes possible. DNA is unique person to person, as you know. Every one of us has our own genetic uh, uh, our own genetic makeup, our own DNA, and yet our DNA shares commonality with other people and it shares really specific traits with people in our family. Um, there is certain DNA that's just passed down by males. Um, and so a DNA profile can generally be matched to a specific person, um, but, it, but it might show traits of other family members. So the way that this can be used traditionally, and by traditionally I mean since the early 1990s, was there were really three ways you could use DNA to solve a crime or in a criminal investigation. The first was you could match that crime to other unsolved crimes. So if you had a series of sexual assaults, say, you could do DNA testing in all of those and say, okay, we've, we've got the same person that's committed all of these. We don't know who it is, but we can match this victim, the DNA that was left on this victim with the DNA that was left on this other victim, and you know you're looking for a serial offender. So that was sort of one way that DNA was traditionally used. Then you could have a, another way where you have a sexual assault or a murder and you come away with a DNA profile that you believe is the suspect's. Uh, often that's, you know, semen if there's a sexual assault. Sometimes it's blood. Sometimes people that stab someone, for example, end up cutting themselves. So the detectives would find blood of the victim and blood of the perpetrator at the scene. And so let's say they've got this DNA profile and they've got uh, a suspect that they have identified. We think this person might be the person. They can go collect a DNA sample from that person and then see if it matches. And if it matches, they can start building their case. And if it doesn't, they can eliminate that person as a suspect. So that's the second way. And then the third way, essentially, is to take 
uh, DNA sample from a crime scene that's unidentified and add it to the FBI's national database, what's known as CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. Right now, there are 19 million profiles in this database. 14 million are from known offenders, people in jail and prison that have been convicted of a violent crime. 4 million are from people who have been arrested for serious crimes but not convicted. But there are still over 1 million unidentified profiles in the database as well. These DNA samples are from unsolved crime scenes that have never matched a known person. What's come online in the last couple of years is this sort of revolutionary new way of using DNA, un- unidentified DNA. And we can really trace its origin back a couple of years to the arrest in California of a man named Joseph D'Angelo. He is suspected of being um, a guy who committed dozens of rapes and um, more than a dozen murders in California in the 1970s and 1980s. What that technique is, is sort of a mix of DNA technology and genealogy. Um, It's come to be known as genetic genealogy. So the way it works is um, a researcher will take an unknown DNA profile from a crime scene that the detectives are pretty certain is the killer's DNA. What a geneticist will do is then upload that profile into an open source DNA database. We have all these DNA databases out there. People have heard of Ancestry and 23andMe and there's a bunch of other ones. People who will get their own DNA tested and upload it to these databases, you know, to try to find long lost relatives or to see if they've got relatives they didn't know about or in you know in the case of adoptees to see if they've got biological relatives in the database most of these databases are closed to the police but there are a few that are known as sort of open source and in their user agreements they tell people you know if you put your dna in here you know that the police and anybody else might be looking at it What these researchers will do with this unknown DNA sample is they'll upload it to one of these databases and they'll look for relatives, biological relatives. Often it's, you know, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, but they might identify a dozen people or something that are biologically related to this DNA sample that they believe is from the killer. And then the geneticist will start building a family tree and you plot the people you know on that family tree and then you start researching them, who were their parents, who were their children, who were their siblings, and you just start building out this family tree. And eventually, you may identify people in the tree that are potential suspects because they're the right age or they were in the right place at the right time or in some cases they're already convicted of crimes, maybe convicted of crimes back at a time when their DNA didn't get into the FBI database. And so it's it's sort of, you know, I think of it as reverse engineering, right? Instead of taking a DNA and, and matching it to a suspect, you take this DNA and match it to some distant relative of the suspect and then work your way back to identify that person. And so that that's how the Golden State Killer case in California uh, led to an arrest. There were 
You know, a handful of cases around the country solved this way in 2018. There were scores solved this way last year, and I'm guessing this year we're going to see hundreds of cases uh, solved this way. I know of a number of agencies here in the Denver area that are using this technique now to try to solve some of their really old cases. Um, and so it's it's really opened a whole new front on cold cases that have stymied detectives for decades. In Helene's case, it is this very crowdsourced genetic technology that has allowed the biggest breakthrough of all. In 2017, these detectives sort of started thinking along these lines, maybe we can use this DNA to identify this person's relatives. Over the next couple of years, they took a profile and they and they came up with um, some people that might be related to this person and then they started looking through their family trees and building them and they actually got to a point where they were pretty sure that the killer was uh, related to a couple people they'd identified this way. So let's say you've taken this DNA sample, you've built this family tree, you're pretty sure that this person in the family tree is a good suspect. Now you've got to get DNA from that person to see if it matches. And so the most, the most common technique um, is to follow the person around surreptitiously and find something they've discarded that they might have left DNA on. It can be um, a cup and a spoon from the ice cream shop. It can be your coffee cup. It can be anything that, that basically, you know, that, you, that, that the person handled that can be tested. And there were two brothers that they started to focus on. And one of the brothers had had a number of um, serious criminal cases, and his DNA was on file in California. So they got it and they could tell it wasn't their suspect, but they could tell it was a male relative of their suspect. Some of the markers passed down in male in the male lineage matched. So then they thought, okay, it's gotta be uh, a sibling perhaps. And so that led them to this guy who was born Curtis Allen White and sometime uh, changed his name to James Curtis Clanton. They found him in Florida, and what was interesting was they knew these two people were one and the same because they both had the same FBI number. James Curtis Clanton had criminal cases, and so did Curtis Allen White, and their fingerprints matched. So in the FBI's um, identification database, the detectives here knew that Curtis Allen White and James Curtis Clanton were one and the same. And as they started looking into his background, they figured out that he'd been convicted of rape in Arkansas in the 1970s and had actually spent time in prison. And they had figured out that when he was paroled, he came to Colorado. And that was the year before Helene Przinsky was killed. And then they discovered that he was in Colorado until sometime after she was killed. I think it was the following year. So they knew he was in Colorado when this happened. They knew he had previously been convicted of sexual assault. There was a knife involved in that other sexual assault. Helene Przinsky was stabbed to death. So they're thinking, there's a lot here that makes us think this could be our guy. After reaching out to local police in Florida... Denver area investigators flew out in order to gain more DNA to confirm their suspect. Investigators locate James Clanton and begin to follow him, waiting for the perfect moment to collect his DNA from discarded items. And they followed him around, and um, at one point, um, 
he was driving his truck and he stopped near a dumpster and he and he then went on. The detectives didn't see him throw anything in the dumpster, but they thought maybe he had. And so they went and looked in the dumpster and there was a milk bottle sitting right on top that looked like it had just been tossed in there. So they collected it, brought it back to Colorado, took it to the lab, no match. So now they're back to following him again and they follow him to a bar in Florida um, where he orders several beers and pours them into a mug and drinks them. And they had arranged uh, with a local detective to collect that mug from the bar after, after the guy had left. And so they got that mug and a couple others, brought him back here to Cal- uh, Colorado, sent him to the CBI lab, and lo and behold, the mug that this man had been using, they got a, they got a DNA match that fit exactly with the DNA they had from Helene Przinsky's clothing. So that's what got them their arrest warrant. And they went to Florida and they arrested him and he waived extradition and flew back to Colorado. Although most following this case thought a long capital murder trial would follow, in early 2020, Clanton pled guilty to the 40-year-old murder of Helene Przinsky. Clanton, do you plead to murder in the first degree after deliberation? Before entering his guilty plea, Clanton waived his extradition rights in Florida, then confessed to the murder on the way to the airport. He uh, really just wanted to get it off his chest. It was very unusual to hear that kind of uh, remorse and gratitude for the opportunities that he knew he didn't deserve, but that he got. He will be sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Clanton will be in his 80s when he will be eligible for release. Even with this closure, there are still questions about other cases that were thought to be in connection with Helene. It occurred in a part of town with a handful of somewhat similar crimes. Um, You know, other uh, abductions that involved sexual assaults of, of young women that remain unsolved to this day. And interestingly, in the ones in which they have DNA, they now can, can conclude that they're not related to this one. Um, for a long time, the theory was that maybe the same predator was was operating in that p- part of town for a, a long period of time. They have cases going back into the 60s and the 70s uh, that were similar. Young woman abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed and left somewhere else in another part of town. Um, so they now don't believe any of those murders are tied to this one, but they are reexamining a bunch of um, sexual assaults from that era to see if any of those can be tied to the suspect. Tragically, Helene's parents are not alive to see their daughter's killer behind bars. I think that's always one of the saddest things about these cold cases is family members often um, hang on to the idea that they'll get an answer, you know, while they're still with us. And in this case, Helene's parents are no longer alive. But I did interview her sister and... um, You know, she was, um, you know, really, I I mean, it's, it sounds strange to say she was happy. Um, you know, we're talking about the murder of her sister and, um, the way it affected their lives all these years is just, you know, it's beyond imagination, but they were, um, gratified that the detectives kept working on this over the years after so many years of not knowing and, um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people like this over time, and, I, and they almost all go through periods where they're really hopeful that it's going to happen and periods where they don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, it's just a royal of emotions for these families of cold case victims. 
New technology is what allowed this case to be solved. What is amazing is that the officers that closed down this case are several generations removed from the original police who investigated the initial crime scene. Well, that's one of the hardest things about cold cases is the continuity. I mean, some of the detectives that worked on this case in the beginning are, are you know, they were, they were in the middle of their careers then. They are elderly now. Um, there, there are quite a number of cold cases I've reported on where the original detectives are no longer alive. And so you lose that institutional knowledge. You lose their thought processes on what, you know, what they were doing back then, what they were thinking, how they were working. And um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's really interesting to see this new generation of people, in some cases people that weren't even born when uh, this victim might have been killed, who are now using, you know, forensic tools that weren't available all those years before to uh, lead them to an answer. And uh, the, the cold case detectives that crack these cases are, you know, they're just dogged and they're um, just interested in answering that question, you know, for the people left behind and for the community and to make it known that, they, that, that everybody's life matters and uh, that they, they're all owed the effort to try to solve these crimes. It's important to also remember that even with the newest technology, it takes professional evidence collection and preservation to allow modern forensics to work. Evidence collection is everything. And if the detectives did a good job of collecting evidence, and by that I mean they didn't handle it themselves, they wore gloves, they packaged it properly, they stored it in a temperature-controlled room, kept it out of the sunlight, kept it away from moisture, um, if they did all of those things, today, science can find answers in that evidence. And, you know, people will, will sometimes ask me, you know, can this, could this case from the 1960s or the 1970s still be solved? And the answer is, let's look at, let's look at the state, status of the evidence. If the evidence was properly collected, properly stored, and properly maintained all these years, there's a great chance that you can find DNA or other forensic clues that might lead you to a suspect, even after all this time. Unsolved cases for families, friends, police, and reporters alike are incredibly frustrating. But for Kevin, it's small victories like these that keep him going. This case gives me new energy to look into some of the cases that even predate this one, cases that have been cold for a long time. Um, sometimes, you know, by telling these stories, we can get people to uh, think back and think about things they might know and come forward in some cases, obviously. So I think that's a place where, um, you know, the media can be valuable to investigators. And, um, you know, I get excited when these things lead to an arrest because um, I can't imagine what it would be like to have a family member murdered. I especially can't imagine what it would be like to have a family member murdered and go through decades of my life with that unsolved. I, I just feel like that would be a heartbreaking existence. And so 
It's exciting to see these things lead to arrests for these people that have waited so long. I've got another case where a woman's 86 years old and suspect was just identified in the murder of her son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter about 18 months ago. And for years, she had been thinking, I hope I live long enough to see this case solved. And, you know, now she's hoping to live long enough to see the case in, in a courtroom. It hasn't gotten to that point yet. But I think that's a pretty common feeling. And seeing these things get solved gives me hope that others are going to be solved. Spencer, something that I found kind of interesting about this case is how they collected the DNA to get this guy. Right. It's pretty wild. I mean, it was a clandestine operation. One thing that that if you watch any kind of true crime shows or you listen to our podcast— They pick up like the cigarette butt. Yeah. As long as they've discarded it, it's fair game, and they can collect that and use that for evidence. Oh, like you can't rush up and grab something from somebody. No, you can't grab it out of his hand while he's drinking it. He's got to discard it. be obvious— it's just like well. it's just like trash you put out to the street. Once you've discarded it, put it out to the street. Right. It's it's property. Because they didn't arrest him at the time. They were just trying to collect that extra DNA needed to fill in the gaps. So what else can you tell us about this suspect that, who, who pled guilty? Yeah, so James Clanton uh, recently pled guilty to uh, the murder of Helene. Um, he was in Denver at that time. He had committed a rape in Arkansas. And he was paroled out in order because one of his former counselors or therapists had said, I can take him and he can live with me. So the court system in Arkansas allowed him to leave the state to live in the Denver area after he was convicted for rape. Living with his therapist. Yes. Or an ex-therapist. Tragic case. I'm glad we have his guilty plea. Yeah, yeah. And, and I they tracked him down. The, and in regards to that, there was this really intense um, group of friends and family of Helene that kept her memory alive. Um, yeah. they have, they've been running a scholarship uh, since her disappearance and murder all the way to today. They're still giving out the uh, memorial scholarship in her name. And this group would occasionally over the years fly back to Denver to make sure that investigators were uh, doing everything they could in order to solve this case. So uh, a really passionate group. Uh, trying to gain justice, and I think that they were able to gain a small semblance of that even 40 years later. Thanks for bringing us the story. Yeah, and a big thanks to Kevin Vaughn um, and KUSA for bringing us the story. Yeah, we've talked to Kevin about a few cases over the past few months. We have, and you know, he has his own podcast. He does. Blame. Blame. Check it out. It's actually an amazing story. It's really good. Jessica, what are we talking about next week here on True Crime Chronicles? Next week, we're going to talk about a small town in Ohio where over the span of just over a year, six women went missing. All right. We'll be back next week with that story. Spencer, what can people do? If you like this podcast, please uh, uh, give us a like, give us a subscribe, and rate us on uh, whatever application you're listening to this podcast on. And if you'd like to join us for a discussion, you can join our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault, where we talk about this and other cases that we're covering in Vault Studios and where you can you have the opportunity to tell us about a case you think we should be looking at. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under Vault Studios and Inside the Crime Vault and True Crime Chronicles. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.